How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing storytelling in the age of climate disruption. Most people have heard how the burning of fossil fuels is increasing the Earth's temperature. Scientists and environmentalists spew facts and figures about atmospheric carbon concentrations and the high risks of low probability events like fires, extreme storms, etc. We've had a lot of those conversations right here at Climate One. But are those statistics and insights having an impact on public opinion? Are facts or stories more powerful in shaping our perceptions and behavior? The next hour, we'll talk about energy and environmental narratives, conflicts between heroes and villains, and the influence of archetypes, and a lot more. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club, we're pleased to welcome three guests with diverse perspectives on the power of storytelling and media communications. Carrie Armel is director of a Sensor and Behavior Initiative at Stanford, a cross-disciplinary project funded by the federal government looking at how information and technology can influence people's behavior around energy. She has a PhD in psychology and cognitive science. John Ellis is director of the documentary program at UC Berkeley School of Journalism and was series producer for the PBS documentary The Eyes on the Prize and most recently was executive producer of The Island President, a film about the Maldives and sea level rise. His journalism laurels include several national Emmys, Peabody's and Alfred DuPont Awards. Jonah Sachs is co-founder of Free Range Studios, an ad agency here in the Bay Area. He's also author of the new book published today, uh, Winning the Story Wars, Why Those Who Tell and Live the Best Stories Will Win the Future. He helped create The Story of Stuff, a video that went viral on the Internet and is now used widely in schools around the country teaching about consumption and sustainability. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, Jonas Sachs, let's begin with you. In the late 1980s, the climate scientist James Hansen testified before Congress for the first time, laid out the evidence that humans were affecting the Earth's climate. He revealed the truth and thought that would lead to action. You write about that in, the, in your book. So tell us that story about James Hansen and what that means about the importance of uh, relying on experts and, and facts versus stories. Sure. Well, James James Hansen had been kind of uncovering this frightening set of facts since about the late 60s. He was sort of one of the first to start looking at this. And like a good scientist should, he felt that his job was simply to reveal what was going on. And he felt that if he could let people know in ways that were becoming more and more irrefutable in his mind and through his research what was going on, that he could simply turn the information over and everyone would act. Things would just kind of fall into place. And it would be kind of unseemly for a scientist to do anything else. So when he came out to testify for the first time, he figured he was kind of at the end of the road here. He put the facts out, and the response was uncertainty, a little bit of fear, but also a sort of mass denial because it was so difficult to do something about it. And then great stories from the opposition, people who didn't want to change, the fossil fuel industry primarily, to make us question whether these facts actually meant something. And he toiled for about the next 20 years trying to just scream the facts. And he was so trained, deeply trained to believe if we put these facts out there, people will change. And it wasn't until uh, the beginning of this century that he finally started chaining himself to uh, coal plants and starting to tell stories about a 70-year-old man who had been pushed to the brink and now was willing to actually take direct action um, and to try to find a new story. And he basically came out um, not long ago and said, that the facts cannot rule the day and that it's really about we have to tell our stories about what this means um, for our society and what we can do about it. And that, that's how society has always worked. We're, we're driven by facts and we're, we're driven by myths that are based, that explain the world, not simply strings of facts that tell us what we should do uh, and how we should respond to the world around us. And we'll get into some of that more. John Ellis, I mean, how do you see the narrative in the last couple of decades? You're a storyteller. Do you see, you know, some of the failure of that message of, of uh, you know, dispensing the facts? Well, I think Jonah's right that, that facts alone cannot win the day um, in a democracy. <clears throat> uh, 
And in a functioning democracy, I think facts and narrative of some sort um, are a, an unbeatable combination. Um, well, occasionally they get beat, but very often um, uh, they work. And we they can backfire. That is, narratives can can be counterfactual also, and we've seen a lot of that, particularly in political uh, campaigns. But if we're talking about big movements like the environmental movement, like the uh, civil rights movement, like uh, abolition um, in the 19th century, I mean, you could in a way say that the facts about slavery were known for a long time. And it took things like Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, It took uh, the slow building of a movement uh, around narratives and around images, frankly. When we talk about narratives, storytelling, um, the story of Rosa Parks, for instance, uh, the story of David Brower stopping Marble Canyon uh, Dam. We also have to to acknowledge the power of single images. Uh, and I think one of the problems with uh, climate change, and especially with Hansen's early work, was that it, 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 no one ever succeeded in tying that to a dog going after a demonstrator with, and fire hoses uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. That is, we have yet, there's, there are a few images in An Inconvenient Truth in the Al Gore film. The glaciers are very powerful, but there's nothing that's quite as hot imagistically um, as what we've seen in previous um, movements, the anti-apartheid movement. Uh, so that is, that's part of what we're cooking up here. Um, If there's one image that people think of climate change, it's probably a polar bear. Maybe yeah. a melting iceberg. Yeah. Both mm-hmm. are things that yeah. most Americans never see I- I- firsthand, and they're far away, and it's hard to see how that relates to their lives. I want to get to, get to Carrie in a minute, yeah. but you know, that image, you know, is, that, is it possible to, to rebrand that image, Jonas Axe, to make the polar bear uh, not the icon for climate change and make it, I don't know, something more close to home? Yeah, I mean, the the thing about images is they bring down the set of invisible facts to the human scale. Mm -hmm. So we were programmed to be afraid of tigers, not parts per million Mm -hmm. of, uh, Mm -hmm. I should say, uh, saber-toothed tigers on the savannah. So we don't understand how these invisible gases can really get to us. And those images don't bring things down to the human scale because we don't have that human um, experience of of the Arctic or of polar bears. We're just, that's not, that's not close to us. And until we can start seeing what it really feels like and looks like to live in this future that we're heading towards, um, it's going to be very hard for us to react. Uh, but we can do that. Kira, Mel, our brains wired. Can we process this? Can we, something that's so abstract and in time and space, can, can our brains process such a threat? Um, well, they're exactly right with my experience um, that people really can't visualize what's going to happen well into the future, and they're much more affected by the the immediate um, experiences and the visualizations that that immediate um, visualization. So um, there's um, there's things that are hardwired. There's things that are learned through association. There's things that are learned through multiple levels of associations. And then there's sort of the facts that are beyond that. And so the more degrees of separation, the less visceral and tapping into the emotional and motivational systems that there are, yeah. Which reminds me a little bit of a tie-in with the point that you made about the scientists um, and and them presenting the facts. And it's um, a little bit off on a different topic, but it ties into these two systems of the the emotional and the the visceral reaction and then the, the a second system that's more factually based, whereas if um, scientists are presenting the facts and yet the facts have such dire consequences and they're conveying these facts to the general public um, as facts, the general public may not understand the facts entirely, but they see the um, the emotional um, uh, the emotion that the scientist conveys and the narrative that the scientist gives them. And if they don't see much emotion or much narrative associated with the scientist, then their interpretation may be, well, it, it doesn't have such severe consequences. And so maybe there almost is a role for the scientist to play in, in stepping over that boundary to better convey to the public the severity that they feel is occurring. Yeah, there's a huge mismatch because facts by their nature, are supposed to be valueless. They're not values-based. A values-based fact is not a fact, right? So we put out information that's not values-based 
um, we're missing a chance to get people to act because almost all of our actions we see through research is based on values and not our rational sort of um, measuring of what's right and wrong, but truly does this connect with my values and I will act upon it regardless of what the facts say, and yet we always present facts as, as the very opposite of that. And so and stories are what are actually containers for values and always have been ways of transmitting values. Um, that's what they are. That's why children sit on their parents' knees and ask for stories. They want to know what we value. What do my parents value? What does the society value? And if we're not talking about values, we're, you know, we're missing the game. And anyone who observes politics lately knows that values rule the day in a very complex world. Um, values voters are basically have been ruling our, our democracy for quite a long time. So what are the, the narrative, competing narratives right now on, on climate change? We hear some people say it's not happening, humans aren't causing it. Other people say, yes, it's definitely happening, definitely human cause, and there seems to be a battle. Who's winning in that? Well, I think the, uh, the, the battle in many ways is, is over for whether or not it's really happening. In my mind, if you look at opinion polls, people generally have come to understand and believe enough to make, it, to make the change that we need to make. Um, there is still that sort of seeds of doubt that help f- feed into the denial story that we all kind of hope it's not true. We all would like to believe it's not true. So those seeds of doubt are important. One of the kind of very interesting stories that I see bubbling up right now um, is the, the story about whether this is our fault as individuals for making bad choices or is it the fault of the market that we're being given. And um, we're working on a new story of stuff called the story of change, which is really about um, – the fact that if we're not given good choices in the marketplace but constantly feel like we're making the best, every time we get on a plane, every time we get in our car, we're causing climate change and we're planet wreckers, then that story becomes we're our own enemy and we don't know what to do with that story. But the reality that's coming out now is that um, there are some enemies out there that are not necessarily us. We don't have choices about how to live our lives in a way that can stop the climate change problem. But we can reorient the marketplace to help us do that. We can fight against some of these oil companies who already have enough oil on their carbon on their books that they're planning to burn that's going to take us to 10 degrees Celsius in the future. Those business models are the enemy. If every time we get in the car or go see our grandma, we feel like we are the problem, there's almost nothing to do. But if we can start looking at the factors that are causing climate change and start really using the global marketplace to, to price carbon or whatever we need to do to attack the problem and encourage solutions, I think we can kind of start building a global movement. We need a new story with new villains that are not ourselves because it's not working. John, uh, else, who are the villains in the carbon story? Well, <laughs> um, we can go way back to begin to identify that. No, there was a famous... Um, commercial in about 1970, the, the Crying Indian commercial, which is a famous 30-second spot. People of a certain age are all nodding, I see. And it showed a Native American in his canoe paddling along, pulling the canoe up on a shore that was littered with junk, uh, with smokestacks in the background, um, and getting out of his, his canoe, uh, a car drives by and throws a bunch of fast food wrappers and junk at his feet. And the announcer says people make pollution, people can stop pollution. And what that did, and what I think it ties into what you're saying, that that shifted the blame to all of us who throw litter out of our cars. And it ignored the this enormous production of carbon, this tremendous consumption of fossil fuel that was happening just off camera that we had just seen. Um, and so, I mean, the, the individual responsibility is a two-way street. It, it is, it's a cover I mean, who is the enemy? I think, you know, it's, it's national and international policymakers. It's national and international legislative bodies. It is certainly uh, large players in the markets, uh, particularly in the fossil fuel uh, markets. Uh, I mean, you know, in, in other movements, if we think of this as a movement, it was easier to identify villains whom you could steer, you could direct, uh, because the atmosphere does not know national boundaries, because the air that I polluted driving here today is going to end up uh, in China. Uh, I mean, forget the fact that climate legislation is stalled in the United States legislative uh, system. Um, I mean, Kerry can speak more to this than I can. It seems to me we have this global problem where the enemies are all over the place and not really under the under the control of any policy body or any regulatory body. Does that mean individuals are off the hook? I mean, we have some responsibility. Yeah, of course we do. Yeah, Yeah. but but if we were all, if none of us had driven here today. 
I mean, and the concept, if we, if we would, it always starts with, well, if we, I can do it, and if we, and if we all do it. The truth is, we won't all do it and make those choices. That's not how our economy and our markets are set up. It doesn't, that, that's a big gap that we just jump over and does shift the blame. A really interesting thing about that story, which I write about in the book, is first of all, that was a campaign designed by beverage container makers who didn't mm-hmm. want to see deposit laws on bottles. Mm-hmm. So they said, hey, here's a new idea. People start pollution. They should stop it. It's not our problem. So that's mm-hmm. the most iconic environmental mm-hmm. campaign of all time incredibly effective because it was an amazing story. And it actually does what I call kind of filling a myth gap. It came out at a time um, of Vietnam and environmental movement realizing basically uh, that we were, we were very out of touch with American imperialism at the time. We, we were really questioning how we had treated Native Americans. All the Western movies at the time were all about um, the, the, the Native Americans as the good guys and the cowboys as the bad guys. We were questioning like our national history based on both conquering the frontier and what we were doing in Vietnam. And this ad came along that made us feel really good. We're on the side of the Native Americans. We feel good about ourselves. We're cleaning up our rivers. We're cleaning up the world. We're getting out of Vietnam. It was all conflated together with this new myth and story that if I put this in this trash can, I am reconciling myself to to my sense of identity, and it worked great. Um, We can do those kind of myths too, but we should not be doing them to stop bottle deposit laws. We should be doing them to try to actually save the world. Is buying a Prius such a myth? Thinking that, well, I'm doing good, I've addressed my conscience, but it's not, it's such a value statement. But I, it's not I drive really... a Prius, and, um, <laughs> and I feel that every action that you, <laughs> I feel that every action that you take, and every time you declare that you're on the side of saving the planet in any way, is, is a great thing to do. Um, and it's a terrible place to stop doing anything after that. So it's, it's wonderful to, to declare your intention. And if, if, you, if you wear something, if you drive something, if you do something that makes you know that every, you are on the side of fighting this, this problem, then that's great. But if you think that's all you need to do, you know, it's not, hope, it's not very hopeful for future generations. Let's talk about heroes. You, the, the hero's journey, you write about the heroes of journey. You know, a hero to be enters the world out of balance. Uh, and one person that you write about, John Brown, former CEO of British Petroleum, really was living a lie. And that was a company that a lot of people rallied behind, and we all know what happened, uh, BP with the oil spill, et cetera. So how does, let's weave uh, John Brown and BP into this. Jonah. I, I was really fascinated with BP when I was writing the book because I was thinking about how, it, how we don't just need to tell better stories, but we actually need to live those stories. But, but why? And BP seemed like way too easy a target because they're like, well, of course BP destroyed their brand when they destroyed the Gulf. And they, but they, they destroyed so much more than just their green brand. But as I looked more deeply into it, I actually came to the conclusion that their deceptive green branding of BP, the Beyond Petroleum thing, actually caused in many ways the Deepwater Horizon spill and destroyed billions of dollars of equity, not just in the brand, but actually in the company. And here's why. Um, BP at the time had huge safety problems. They had about 715 violations to ExxonMobil's one over 10 years. But the public hated ExxonMobil because of the Valdez spill. Here's BP. We're beyond petroleum. They were actually the most aggressive fossil fuel ex- explorers with the worst safety record. But when the crisis, when the, when the spill happened, um, Tony Hayward walked into his office, in the privacy of his own office, and he said, what the hell did we do to deserve this? He could not believe that this had happened to them because the world was telling them, you're the good guys. Queen Elizabeth knighted John Brown, made him Lord Baron something of Matting, I forget his name, but it gave him some really good title. And he became the <laughs> Sun King. And BP became this wonderful brand, and they believed they were the good guys. And there's a, there's a phenomenon called groupthink, group where when you have a cohesive group of people who believe they're right, they ignore all the facts outside of them that are telling them you're on the wrong path. And BP was so obviously on the wrong path, they got report after report from outside consultants that they ignored at their own peril. And they wouldn't have done it, I don't believe, if they had the, the negative reputation that ExxonMobil had, who was actually much more safe. So I think brands that go out there and try to cast themselves as green are not just pulling the wool over our eyes with those stories, but they're actually, it's a huge liability for themselves. John Ellis, a very different character. You uh, spent a lot of time working on a documentary of President Nasheed of the Maldives. Uh, he, some people look to him as certainly a, a, voice, a voice of moral clarity, mm-hmm. if not a, a hero these days. Tell us about what he's doing, uh, former president of Maldives, uh, President Nasheed. Um, yeah, I mean, he's a, you know, I think the, the, the Richard Burge and John Shank and Bonnie Cohen, who conceived that film, were very, very, very smart to find this guy. I mean, if there was ever a fascinating individual, a charismatic, complex, complicated individual who was was in the trenches, um, 
uh, perhaps unwillingly at first, in the, the climate battles. Uh, it's President Nasheed. Um, and uh, for those of you who don't know, there are really two, two parts to the story of uh, the island president. Uh, one is Nasheed's battle to bring democracy to the Maldives um, after 30 years of a dictatorship and this slow, dogged uh, work to become the first democratically elected president of this island nation after he'd been imprisoned many, many times, tortured. And then uh, the day he went into office, uh, there was some bad news, and the bad news was that the seas are rising, and the highest point in the Maldives is about six feet above uh, sea level. So the film uh, traces a year in his life, um, and if anyone, any head of state on the planet has a stake in reversing or at least stopping uh, climate change, it's Mohammed Nasheed. So the year uh, that the crew followed him really is a year in which he goes around the world trying to shake the world by the lapels to say, look, you know, you have to limit carbon emissions. We've got to cap this thing at 300 parts per million or 350. And where the hero's journey becomes complicated, as it has become complicated with many other historical figures uh, in every movement, is that Nasheed then went to the climate change conference in Copenhagen and that's where things got incredibly complicated, incredibly nasty, incredibly the, – the, the, the passion to do exactly the right thing ran up against the realities of trying to get a couple hundred nations in a room to agree on something. Um, and like so many visionary leaders, Nasheed was faced with coming away with a compromised agreement from Copenhagen or no agreement at all. And um, – I'm not giving anything away to say that, you know, over the objections of many of his own cabinet, many of his own advisors, uh, he fought for a compromised agreement uh, in Copenhagen uh, as a start. Uh, Something's better than nothing. Yeah. Something better than nothing, yeah. And that – you see that again and again in social movements. People who, um, you, know, you know, winning the revolution is one thing and then actually governing the country is often much, much harder than winning the revolution. Carrie Armel, can regular people be heroes? That's uh, a good question. So there's uh, some interesting work by Phil Zimbardo, um, mm-hmm. where he's spent a lifetime studying what makes people evil. And I believe towards the end of his career, he studied what makes people become heroic and how can ordinary people become extraordinary people. Um, and so he's uh, delved into uh, some of those principles and has uh, a program where in, in different domains like health domain, environmental domain, et cetera, he tries um, uh, finding people who have who ordinary people who have become heroes to identify them and tell their narratives and share them with other people and then develop programs to, to help other people become heroes as well. Um, we are, are doing a, a bit of a spin-off project kind of related to that, not specifically with Phil, but um, as part of our ARPA-E Grant, um, we uh, have kind of backed in this to this narrative space, starting with how can we um, help people identify which actions they can take to reduce their energy use, um, how to overcome barriers so that they can uh, execute on those actions, reduce their energy use, make everything super easy, et cetera, et cetera, many different behavioral techniques, some technology thrown in there. But um, to, to tie that all together and make it um, visceral and appealing to people, we've started layering on metaphors and narratives. And, and one that we've kind of uh, stumbled into after a lot of exploratory work relates to um, empowering people um, through this metaphor of heroes. Um, so we actually, um, along with Draft FCB, a, a, a marketing company, they held a competition with um, offices of theirs all over the world to uh, to come up with um, stories or visualizations or metaphors that would resonate with people so that they could see their energy use. And, and we got about 100 submissions. And we realized going through them that probably about 98% of the, the 100 were, were negative and that they had to do with sort of what we were talking about a little bit earlier with guilt and um, fear and things along those lines. And, and at that moment, we sort of realized that that it, this whole movement is, is very unempowering for people. And um, 
there's when people are unempowered and feel like they can't um, take action, they develop a certain amount of cognitive dissonance so that they um, they diminish the importance of that thing or um, there's a denial is a common reaction to it, etc. And um, and instead of doing that, if you want people to take action, you actually want to empower them. And so um, so we started thinking about well, what metaphor could we use that would empower people. And so we, we've been playing around with the idea of a, a hero metaphor where people, um, when they save power, they assimilate that power and they become more powerful. Um, so anyhow, uh, there's kind of a little narrative. So when my kids turn that. off the lights, they're going to be heroes, and they're going to get more powerful. Right? I don't yeah. Know, I like that. <laughs> okay. Well, so yeah, we have a we have John a little else. yeah. John Ellis. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I want to follow up. You asked about the hero's journey, and mm-hmm. there are a couple of two different kinds of heroes. There are individual heroes who make a difference in their in their own lives, and in the circle, the small difference in the circle around them. In the sort of Joseph Campbell sense, there is the hero's journey where. Mm-hmm. We have this, this myth of the, the individual who is called upon to go out and save the kingdom and goes out and, and slays the dragon and pretty much single-handedly comes back and saves the kingdom. That works very often in literature and it works in narratives. When you begin applying it to large social movements and to the kind of storytelling that I get involved in where we're looking at big social movements, the anti-apartheid movement, the environmental movement, civil rights movement, it becomes much more complicated because, I mean, Rosa Parks is a very interesting case that she is called up as very often as the icon, sort of the mythic hero of the civil rights movement, as a woman, a, a simple seamstress who sat down on the bus because she was tired. The fact is that Rosa Parks had been active and training for decades before that happened, had been thrown off that same bus many times before, was the, the state chairman of the NAACP Youth Committee. There was a huge... Uh, organization in Montgomery, Alabama, the Women's Political Action Committee, there was this whole structure of foot soldiers and, and officers, if you will, that were ready to spring into action. And then after she sat on the bus, contrary to what I think an awful lot of folks think, it took a year of people walking to work in Montgomery, Alabama, and it took finally the United States Supreme Court to get get the buses desegregated in Montgomery. I think what's interesting, what you're saying, though, is that the, the hero's journey story is what has held and resonated yes, with most right. of us, and then the facts the fact are behind it, different. and then, so it's relevant, but really, if we have to elevate some of this hero's journey story, because she's remembered. Yeah, the problem is that it, it, it may make us think that one person can just go out and do it, when in fact... Well, I mean, it's a whole new world now with the Internet. Sounds like 2008 election, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the fact is that that one person can light the spark, can get things going, but it takes these tremendously complicated, dogged things that finally lead to a policy change. I mean, it may, not, change. it may not be a great organizing strategy to, like, tell people that we need individual heroes all over the place, but we, the hero's journey story really existed to talk about metaphorically mm-hmm. what an un, what it, it's always an unlikely person. You said, can a regular person sure. be heroes? Yes, it's the, Campbell would say the only people who can be heroes, the regular pers- people who don't believe they have any potential to be hero. Moses was 80 years old. Dorothy is a little girl. Uh, Luke Skywalker is a lame teenager. So they have no chance, right? And then they, they get called upon by this mentor character to do something crazy and dangerous. And the first thing they say is, no, I'm not a hero. So you can't just tell people you're a hero. That No, I'm not the hero. But what they learn to do is they go and they slay that dragon. But what that really means is con- confronting their own fears. And when they, they don't slay the dragon and get a lot of treasure. In fact, when they get the treasure, they usually bring the treasure back and it turns to dirt when they come back to the real world. What they really come back with is a chance to heal a broken society. That's what Campbell said these stories are all about. And so when we, 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 we thrill to these hero journey stories because really they're metaphors for how we become heroes in the smaller way in our own lives. How do we mature and start being engaged with larger things? How do we overcome our own fears? We don't necessarily want to be Luke Skywalker and blow up the Death Star, but we want to sort of learn that we can overcome some of our own limitations and do something. And, um, you know, Campbell would tell us that a hero is someone who sacrifices in some way their own position, comfort, for the greater good. And I think that these bigger narratives, these heroic narratives, don't make us think that one person can stop the climate crisis, perhaps, 
but do make us think, you know what, I, c- I can be part of something more. And all of our marketing for the last 50 years was specifically designed to make us think that we are simply consumers and we need to be, you were talking a little bit about, you keep pe- speaking to people's sort of fears and, and hitting them on that level, which the environmental movement has done, fear, greed, status, you're going to get some sort of consumer activists who really don't know what to do. So it's really about, I talk about empowerment marketing, much the same what you do, uh, what you're talking about, as the only way to kind of bring people into really changing the world. Mm-hmm. So who are some climate heroes out there right now? They agreed that they may not solve everything for us, but who are some inspiring leaders out there that are taking action uh, on, on sustainable issues? Mohammed Nasheed. Mohammed Nasheed? But uh, Mohammed Nasheed was deposed. Mohammed Nasheed's no longer a head of state. But he still has a, a story. His story is unfolding. Has, he has he's now the ousted, yeah. he's the ousted president yeah. trying yeah. to get back into power. That's right. Power I mean, there was a piece about him in this a couple days ago in the New York Times, uh, not about the guy who's now president of the Maldives. He has, he has sort of the moral uh, inspirational force that a guy like King or Mandela had. I don't quite at that level. And, and that resonates. He came to uh, the United States around the time of his film, which mm-hmm. didn't do so well at the box office, but he got on David Letterman, and a whole lot of people saw him on David Letterman. So something resonated, at least there, to get him some an audience. And, and you know, there, there's something there. That's part of his stories unfolding. Who are some other e- heroes? So, so um, two scientists at Stanford, Steve Schneider and also Lee Shipper. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve Schneider, cl- famous climate scientist, mm-hmm. very vocal in the media. And uh, Lee Shipper, who studied transportation all over the world, um, helped institute uh, more sustainable transportation. Unfortunately, both of them passed away in the last couple of years. Both of them were tireless, tireless voices that just killed themselves to... Sacrifice to the cause. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is Al Gore a hero in this respect? I'd just like to, before answering that, highlight the, the kind of small handful, you know, about 1,000 people who... Um, got arrested, went to the White House and stopped the Keystone Pipeline um, as a real direct action um, for something that really was seemed to me at least to be an ink deal. And then through some organizing and some direct action in a time when we feel like we just government won't listen to us, kind of made a, a huge, a huge, at least symbolic and, and hopefully tangible win. Um, and I think, you know, in my mind, um, Al Gore has been a huge part of exposing the reality um, of what's going on and Inconvenient Truth did that. My, like many people say, it was shocking to get to the end of Inconvenience Truth and see these ten simple things that you can now do that didn't in any way match the scale of the problem. That was forgivable, I think, at a little more naive time. I haven't seen from him a new story emerging about what we can really do that calls us to that higher empowerment level. So. I don't think we know yet. I think there's someone out there. There are probably dozens of people out there who are working in places that we don't even think of. They're working inside corporations that are working inside energy companies that are working some obscure staff member on some congressional committee. There are people who are actually taking professional risks by doing what they know is right. And we're not going to, you know, someone's going to, we're going to learn about them 10 or 20 or 30 or 100 years from now. So, John Ellis, when you did the documentary Eyes on the Prize on the Civil Rights Youth Movement, you had the benefit of scholarship mm-hmm. and the benefit of history yeah. to look back. And, of course, Rosa sure. Parks then looked like, of course, that now there's Rosa Parks out there doing things on climate, but we don't see yeah. their impact of their yeah. action yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have the luxury of, you know, letting the scholars work for 20 years, and then we just say, hello, Mr. Scholar, you know, this is Scholar. You know, tell us what happened, and we'll make a movie about it. Um, it's very, I mean, there is a problem. I mean, it's one of the things that was so attractive about Nasheed was that it's very hard to find people who actually are making a difference in the present as the events are unfolding. It's harder yet to actually get access to the process to be backstage, if you will, uh, at the meeting, at these international uh, meetings, at policy meetings. Um, it's a lot easier looking back and getting old newsreel film of Dr. King, for instance. John Els is a director of documentary programs at the UC School of uh, Journalism. Our other guest today, Climate Wonder, Carrie Armel, director of a, a research project at Stanford, and Jonas Sachs, author of the new book, Winning the Story Wars. Carrie Armel? Oh, I was going to say, um, the size of the problem, we, we're supposed to make 60 to 80 percent energy reductions to address this problem. And this is at a time when energy productions are expected to to double, energy consumption is projected to double over the next few decades. So we have to, I mean, dramatic, dramatic changes. So just to your last point, John, I think not only are we going to see spottings of heroes in all these various places, but, but 
as a society, we're going to have to have heroes. And it's not just heroes like I was saying at the individual, you know, household level change our actions. I mean, it's heroes across the board in every sector of society. And my personal experience with people in government um, at DOE, venture capitalists, um, people at startup companies and academia, everyone working in this energy space, um, you know, folks on the stage, everybody working in this space is killing themselves to do the most innovative things um, to really make a dent. So I, I think there's a lot of heroes out there. Yeah. I, I think there's some potential heroes out there because you have people like the Koch brothers who are so old paradigm and so stuck in this way of thinking. And those were traditionally, the, those industrialists, industrialists became the billionaires. And we know what people like that can actually do to the debate. And now we do have this new generation of, of billionaires who kind of rose up out of this millennial, it's a small group of potential heroes. But I, I'm waiting for and really hoping that some of the people in this area actually who have that, that kind of power to fight back on that level and, you know, use the, use the Citizens United fiasco to actually put a lot of money into the other side of things. Um, and we might see some of those people emerging because they're coming with a very different mindset. Their, their wealth is not based on business as usual, and they might be able to help resist. I'd like to read a quote uh, from, from Jonah's book that gets to some of the, the policy and political dimensions of this. This is James Carville, the Democratic uh, strategist, who said, uh, Republicans, quote, say, I'm going to protect you from the terrorists in Tehran and the homos in Hollywood. Democrats say, quote, we are for clean air, better schools, more health care. There's a Republican narrative. There's a Democratic litany. Which is more effective? I think we know which is more effective. Which is, so is that true, that Democrats list issues, cite facts, and Republicans have a better story, values-based story that they tell? I, I mean, I, I put that in the book for that reason. I, I believe so. I think that <laughs> I think Republican strategy starts at the level of values, um, and I think that Democratic strategy often starts at a, a kind of motley collection of facts. I, I, in about 2004, before the election, I sat through this really interesting presentation. We had a group of Democratic uh, organizations, organizations that wanted to support Kerry and an ad firm who kind of came out with a I'm a Democrat kind of ad campaign. And they showed it. And, you know, it was reasonably compelling and trying to show all these heroes who have been Democrats across time. And everyone was looking at this. You know, first of all, they, they kind of gave themselves away when they said, you know, our primary uh, – Clients are Coca-Cola, and you know, the room kind of chilled, and you have all these progressive activists out there. They show this kind of campaign that was actually emotionally moving, showing these faces, like uh, showing Dr. King and uh, showing kind of a FDR and all these Democrats to be proud of. And then immediately everyone started throwing out all these facts. of, Well, I don't see this represented there. I don't see this. What about the fact that this and what about the fact of this? And no one was talking about how it made them feel. And by the time these people slunk off the stage with a mountain of facts being thrown at them, and no one said, well, did this make me feel proud to be a Democrat? And I think that the Republicans always sort of start, or how can we connect with the core values of the people out there? How can we get our policy in line with those values and keep hitting the same values again and again? And I think that... <clears throat> You know, the, the, the use of villains, the use of heroes, all that stuff is, you know, what Carville is talking about, the Republicans do so well. And to understand the structure of a story is really, there's, there's the heroes and the villains on the surface, and just below that is a moral of the story, a key truth about how the world works and should be ordered and does work. And that's how stories get created. If the, We need to not have a motley collection of facts, but kind of core truths about how the world can work. So, John Else, you're a storyteller. Can you help Democrats who are so lousy at this? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I teach in a school of journalism, so I'm not supposed to help anyone. I'm supposed you teach to teach at Berkeley, get, okay. Get facts. Yeah. Um, not there. Well, I mean, it is, you mentioned Kerry, and it is interesting that to compare how John Kerry's campaign handled his narrative, that is, his life history, with how Barack Obama has handled his life history. And I would submit that Barack Obama has been very, very forthright about, as far as I know, about his entire life story. I mean, you know, he, he was running for president and he. I don't know if I can say this on the radio. In the first page of his autobiography, in the first couple of sentences, he said the word shit a couple of times, right, as he was was laying out his story. Kerry completely erased his opposition to the war in Vietnam from his own narrative. and uh, He airbrushed his own story. Yeah, he airbrushed yeah. his own story, and we'll never know whether that was a problem uh, or not. It was a problem when he stood up there and said, John Kerry reporting for duty at the yeah. Democratic National yep. Convention. That yep. was the it was scene just of his destruction of that's right. Veterans for Truth yeah. and all yeah. that. Yeah, there he was a disconnect. Suit. Could I help? Uh, let me phrase it differently. Could I help any responsible leader whom I'd like to see 
serving? Yeah, I think I could by being forthright about their narrative, by being forthright and complete uh, about what, what, is, what is the real story here. So what is the real climate story that should be told right now about what Boy. we're doing to the Earth's atmosphere? Well, you know, I would not begin – I mean, Al Gore has done it one way with an inconvenient truth. What I actually thought was a tremendously powerful film. I mean, I, it really opened my eyes. Uh, I felt that intellectually and visually uh, it was an astonishing uh, achievement. Whether it, it did much good remains to be seen. Al Gore did it one way. That was a, it's an essay film. It's a nonfiction essay. Uh, John Shank and Richard Burge and the folks who did Island President did it in a different way. They, I mean, these are two classic models for us. They found a singular person who was charismatic and smart uh, and had some power and followed him through a 90-minute story covering a year in the life of a climate warrior. And he was the underdog, too. He's a little con- uh, president of a little country yeah. un- up against the That's big right. you know, China That's and the right. U.S. And he right. fits into an awful lot of algorithms in our cultural DNA. We want He's David against the Goliath. Um, you know, we look for that. Uh, as a documentary maker who works mainly in this tremendously bullying visual medium of television, I would also look for images. I mean, you know, I think you could argue that that much of the effective advertising in the last mm, political advertising has not been with heroes, but it's been with villains. It's been with anti-heroes. Uh, it has been um, Michael Dukakis in the tank. It has been Willie Horton. Um, I mean, if we want to really talk about yeah. individual people who really, really change a society, we can go back to the 60s and start talking about assassins. But uh, the, the power of single images for good or for ill um, in the nonfiction world is, is it, I think it's underestimated. Jonas Sachs, you write that John Kerry had a, was a better candidate, but George Bush had a better story. Hmm. And that John Kerry was basically say narcissistic, too much of John Kerry in it. Uh, some people would say there's too much of Al Gore in An Inconvenient Truth. Mm-hmm. The story yeah. wasn't about him. He, yeah, I would the, agree. The, uh, you would agree with that. So uh, people, the person with a better story wins. Yeah, and I, and I also use that John Kerry example to say that one of our classic errors is when we try to communicate as marketers for any kind of cause or any kind of brand, we talk about our, we just keep talking about ourselves. And, uh, you know, it's, it's about us. And John, I kind of analyze John Kerry's speech. It feels like ancient history now, but his kind of acceptance speech at the DNC. And every, for the first two minutes, all he makes are me-focused statements. I, I, my mom did this. I did this. I'm doing that. And Bush didn't do that once. He said, only we or you the whole time. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't an editorial comment that Kerry was a better candidate specifically, but Bush was behind on all the issues. And he just included everyone and, and made it their story. And I, I think that story you're asking about, if I had the new story for climate change, I wouldn't be here right now. I'd be making it, of course. But like uh, the, the, the key, I think, is to recognize that people who are engaged in doing something that matters across the board tend to be happier tend to be more joyful and more satisfied with their lives. And I think the story that needs to come forth is one of credible and joyful rebellion against this problem. Um, we've, we've gotten the ideas out there. We've gotten the facts out there. How can we make it irresistibly fun and meaningful to do something about it and offer pathways that are truly that, – that's what empowerment's all about. So. You know, the environmentalists don't have any good songs. You know, if you think of the anti-apartheid movement and the civil rights movement and the Spanish Civil War, I mean, you know – and yeah, civil rights, Crosby, Stills, and Dash, hey, look yeah. what's happening. Yeah. So the early environmental, there's, there's no climate song. There's no climate song. Yeah. Uh, maybe Melissa Etheridge from Inconvenient Truth, but, yeah, there's no real climate song. Um, we're talking about communication and climate change at Climate One. Our guests today are John Ellis, director of documentary program at UC Berkeley School of Journalism, Jonas Sachs, author of Winning the Story Wars, and Carrie Armella, researcher at Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to take a production break right now and bring the audience microphone out here and invite your participation. Again, a reminder, if you're on this side of the house, please go over to our producer, Jane Ann, where the uh, uh, line will start. And we invite you to uh, one one part uh, question or comment. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll have a lot of them. This is often one of the best parts of the interaction. And uh, if you need some help keeping it one part or short, I'm happy to uh, help you. And um, let's uh, go to the audience participation program. Yes, sir. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. Hello. Thank you for coming. Uh, I always want to ask, 
can't we develop a narrative that moves beyond this blame thing, the question of whose fault it is and who is the enemy, and just say something like, well, we for decades we did what we thought was right, but we've learned some new things since then, and now we've got a problem, and like you just said, together we can solve it. Something along those lines. What do you, do you think that the blame thing is effective, or it, should we move away from it? Jonas Sachs? Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's, a very, um, it's, a, it's a very difficult question on this topic, because... Um, I think that, again, you know, take the, 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 the Darth Vader character in Star Wars. He is both the guy that we blame, the ultimate villain, but also kind of a reflection. He's, he's, our fa- he's a hero's father and who the hero would become if they give in to that anger. So having an empathetic kind of reaction to those who stand in our way is actually very important. And a lot of movements, uh, nonviolent movements, have, have done that really well and seen the other side as human beings. I don't think we necessarily need to demonize any other person, but I think that there are structures, and corporate structures, and, um, and and systems that are in our way that don't have that, that every person can be redeemable in this movement. But I do think that if we say that there are nothing that we're against at all within it, we, we need to first declare what we're for. But if we say that we're not against anything, we can't identify what the problem is except for ourselves. I think we're going to stay in this kind of in this kind of cycle of, of denial. We need, to, we need to be better. We need to be better. And we, we're just not getting there. We've tried it for 30 years, and we're not getting better. So I think it's about uh, not demonizing, not stereotyping. Uh, I use the idea of wars in the, in the, for the title of the book, not to call for more violence and war in the world, but because that, that conflict is, at the key, is, is, is the key of any story. Every story is about character, conflict, and plot. So we need to know what we're against. Um, we don't need to focus on it. We can focus on that positive future. But if we don't know what we're against, there's not really a story there. We have to take responsibility for separating out backward-looking blame with forward-looking responsibility, I think. And I think there's no question that whatever the ill is, there are forces and people who are responsible for perpetuating it, and we can move on to dealing with that in good ways. I I was just going to add, I think it it may be useful to understand what what the actions are. So there's Mm -hmm. sort of the cause of the problem, but then what are the actions that are going to allow us Mm -hmm. to address the problem? And once we understand what actions need to be taken, they may suggest different storylines, potentially different narratives that um, maybe maybe an entity is bad, but maybe it would shed a slightly different story on it as well. So... Mm -hmm. Yes, hi, welcome. Hi. Um, I was fairly encouraged by the environmental um, movement right up until the Soviet Union fell and the Iron Curtain went down and we got a peak behind. And we saw the black towns and there was Chernobyl and so forth. How can we get the world to realize that it affects all of us and we're going to have to work, make it a real we, that it's the planet that's endangered right here? John Ellis, this is more of a global problem than uh, <laughs> Jim Crow in the American South or some yeah. of the things you've uh, Oh, I mean, if I, if I knew, we'd all, you know, we'd all be very, very, uh, <clears throat> very, very happy. You know, I, I think that, I mean, we are in a new world now in the last 10 years with the, the world is all laced together, the Internet. I mean, you know, the, you know, you can, you know, YouTube videos from Syria Somebody probably has some on their iPhone as I'm speaking right now. Uh, that gives me some hope that this this borderless, well, generally borderless, with some glaring exceptions, borderless system of people talking to one another may be our salvation um, in that sense. There, there's, we're also in an era where we have some interesting technology. I'm definitely not saying this is, this is the only way to address it, but it provides an interesting opportunity where we can do simulations and, um, and virtual reality and things along those lines. And so there's a professor, Jeremy Balenson, who's part of our grant, who does virtual reality, and he'll do simulations of um, – uh, he's proposed doing some related to simulations where you can visualize – the carbon molecules building up due to your actions and, and you can see them accumulate and the negative repercussions and you can speed up time, et cetera. So you can, you can change the scale and the time and you can visualize things that you couldn't necessarily before. Um, so there may be a dimension there that, that brings it closer and allows you to see the global repercussions. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us. This is great. Um, 
It strikes me that there's a lot of stories out there that are convincing a lot of people to do a lot of things, just not always the things we want them to do to get to a low-carbon economy. Um, so I'm curious, from each of your perspectives, what stories out there are really effective right now, regardless of the source or the industry of the field, and what can we learn from them? Well, this, this idea of giving people things that actually, not just kind of diffusing, uh, telling a story and then giving them just yet another thing to do, but giving them credible theory of change is, is incredibly important. And Coney 2012, the most viral video of all time, 20-something minutes long, social change video, um, did a lot of things really well. And one of the things that it did really well was laid out a sort of very clear, credible to its audience's theory of change. And most people think, oh, that, we can't take any time with our theory of change in our story or video. But it said, you know, it made it an epic tale. We are a generation that can change the world. And we can't do that today, but what we can do is prove that we're that generation. And to do that, we need to catch this guy you've never heard of. And to do that, we need to convince Congress to have military intervention. And like, if you really look at it, you're like, whoa, this is a lot of strange steps. But you know, 85 million people in a few days signed on. Now, ultimately, it didn't achieve all of its ends. But that's the kind of story when you include people in a sort of a theory of change that makes sense to them and shows them how they can get to epic wins and not just... Um, okay, you've watched this epic video, now click here to sign a petition. I think you can start telling stories that give, that actually create action. And, and then that video created a lot of action. A lot of weird stuff happened around it, of course. It didn't go where it wanted to go in the end. But I think we can learn a lot from, from what it told us. <laughs> and story of stuff. You might mention briefly story of stuff, the impact that had. Yeah, I mean, this, the story of stuff was a paradigm shift in how you see the world. There wasn't a simple action at the end um, to say, okay, now you've, you've, seen how the world really is and there's something that you can do about it right now, it treated audiences actually as grown-ups and said there is no simple thing now to take down this system, but just we want you to understand, we believe that you can understand it and find your own entry points for what to do and gave people many, many ways to see, oh yeah, the stuff that I have has a huge story out there and a huge impact on the world and now everything I see, every material object I buy and see is is, is impacting, and I want to find my entry points. And Annie gives you lots of different groups to join or, or things to do and ways to be a citizen. And interestingly, a lot of people took that video to mean, well, I should just, I sh I should just be a better shopper. I should buy better stuff. And, you know, over time, Annie's kind of revealed to them, well, actually, it's not just about Annie Leonard, stuff. who's the person that's behind the video, should say yes. also that talking about common heroes, she was a single mom who kind of, I don't want to say fell into this, but th this is really... Well, she's someone who knew a lot about the facts and tried to get them out there, and no one listened, and then she learned to tell a story and suddenly became an internet celebrity who changed the way millions of people see the materials economy. So. Let's have our audience question. Hi, welcome. Hello. Um, I would like to suggest for your consideration a symbol, a few heroes, and a good villain. You were talking about the polar bear. I would like you to consider as your symbol fire. We've just been through a ton of fire. We're going to be going through more fire. As far as your heroes go, look at the firefighters. They come from all classes, all races, all religions, both genders, from the captain down to the grunt. You've got some wonderful heroic stories there, and fire has a definite connection with carbon. And as for your villains, look no farther than corporate coal. Thank you. One thing I love about that is... Uh, Firefighters are amazing heroes. You know, Jung talked about this idea of archetypes, these kind of primordial images of certain kinds of characters. Every human being, he felt, was born with the idea of a hero. But then in your own cultural context, you have to apply what does a hero look like, what does a villain look like, what does a mentor look like. And um, in our cultural context, firefighters are sort of that perfect. They're wearing the clothes of the hero all the time. And any, yeah, they're an easy win. Politicians know that, and they might be a great symbol for this. There it is. Okay. That's our next question. Hi, welcome. Thank you so much for being here, having this conversation. And there's a, a story block, I think, that we're experiencing in this country. And we have, kind of have a tr two tribes scenario going on. And I'm guessing that you've been thinking about this a great deal because it's the, one of the primary challenges for this country is to create a connection between those tribes again so mm -hmm. you can have a reasonable storytelling experience together. Have you come up with the answer, please? <laughs> the answer, please. <laughs> well, you know, the, all societies that we've ever seen uh, throughout history are founded on kind of core myths. They're, they're built on core myths. And these, these myths provide universal explanation, meaning, ritual, and um, <clears throat> they, they're shared kind of by everybody. And our changing times have, like, really broken those myths up so we don't really share many myths at all anymore. Um, 
through religion, science, they, they're not giving us those myths that give us all those things together. And marketers have really cracked the way to sort of use products and marketing campaigns to kind of give us those only shared myths. We all share understandings of how to behave and build identities around what marketers have done. Um, we do need some kind of new, univer- more shared and universal myths. And I think that as we step out of uh, the old ways of telling stories and that are that are and spouting values, but really kind of tell new stories that that give the, that anybody can relate to the characters and anybody can relate to the situations, and the values are more quietly placed within them. So instead of going right at the issue with everything that we do in our advocacy, tell compelling stories about real people and keep keep the moral of the story a little bit to yourself and let people make their own decisions. Get these different tribes out there sharing exciting stories and talking about what they think they mean and entering real conversation about, you know, these heroic firefighters, for instance. Well, what does this really mean? What should we do to support them? And slowly allow people entry points. Because if you start with the moral of the story or basically do tell fables, like here's what it means and here's what you should do about it, um, we can't really cross those tribes. When we tell really amazing stories that are emotional, um, that carry values that we all, human, universal human values. And one of the things is that human beings do have a lot of values that they share regardless of how they interpret them. We share a lot of values in common across the board. How can you speak those core universal values and, and keep the moral of the story a little bit to yourself so that you bring more communities into the conversation? John Ellis? You know, one thing we do as historical documentary makers is to look back 10 years or 20 years at what appear to be uh, black and white tribal conflicts. And uh, if you look carefully and if you give the scholars a little bit of time to work, you discover that whatever the conflict, whatever the social movement, whatever these great collisions of forces, uh, that within the tribes, they're very often, they're tremendously fractured and there's tremendous internal debate going on within the civil rights movement, within white resistance to the civil rights movement, uh, within in South Africa, within the environmental movement, within the firefighting community. Uh, and tribes are not, I think it's instructive for us to know that tribes traditionally have not been as, as monolithic and as ossified uh, as we tend to think. And one thing Jonah talked about, common values, food is something that certainly cuts across Mm -hmm. political boundaries. We've seen that with uh, the slow food, food movement, organic food. That certainly uh, reaches across some some boundaries in a way that can be very powerful. Let's have our next audience question. Hi, welcome. Hi. um, I apologize if this is a poorly articulated one, but um, there's a lot of talk about heroes, kind of individuals, right, and and also actions that seem... We seem to be talking about consumer actions but and epic stories, but when you get to the click on the petition, that's boring and not effective and whatever. But, However, I would say that what we, a big part of what we need is political action, and it's group action, whether or not it's politically oriented. And so how do you reconcile kind of these hero stories doing epic things with the things that we need, which actually are people to sign petitions and to vote and to pay attention to politics? We don't necessarily need people... To, I mean, petitions are a very low bar. We don't necessarily need that, but we, what, what Obama's 2008 campaign did so well, I think, was got people to be indi- hero, to be individual heroes within their social networks, um, captains, if you will, of their little world, and do enormous self-sacrifice of, of time and energy and output and putting themselves on the line. And they became, they built social capital within their networks and became heroes so that they could then bring that whole social network to this big common yes, we can. So it's not yes, you can. It's not yes, I, Obama can. It's, it's yes, we all can. But there was lots of room to make that, to make, become a hero in your community as a way of joining that movement. It's, it, you know, it's a, it's, it's gotta be a template for all of us, even though I think it hasn't delivered completely on, on what we hoped it would be forever in all those ways of participation. Um, it showed that people are ready to be both heroic and collectively acting. Yeah, there's something I might add, which is, um, so right now we live in an age where there's um, about 400 million people worldwide operate avatars in virtual environments. And there's sensors all over the world now, smart meters, transportation sensors, sensors in your shoes that track your steps, all sorts of stuff. And that sensor data actually could fairly easily be pulled into these online games to give people um, points or rewards or um, tie into this virtual space to build up a more fantastical or, um, you know, motivating narrative around them. So, again, I'm not suggesting this is the main thing we should be doing, but it's kind of an interesting angle on what we could potentially do to make these sort of um, potentially not very interesting actions more motivating or exciting for people. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Hi, thank you. 
it seemed like in the, the last round where we almost got cap and trade um, in 2009 or, or so, and leading up to that, it seemed like the real barrier to that was um, economic insecurity and in, in the recession uh, that happened. In, whereas in 2006, 2007, people were handicapping if we were going to get some type of cap and trade legislation. So it really seemed like the real issue was uh, economic insecurity. And I was wondering if you would have um, uh, done the storytelling differently around that time, or um, and it looks like we're going to have more economic insecurity for the next few years. So how, how, how do you deal with this uh, from a storytelling perspective? Insecurity is the most uh, powerful tool in the maintenance of business as usual um, or the, the furtherance of, of business as usual, right? The more insecure we feel about national security um, after 9-11, the more we can kind of push this direction. The more economic insecurity, the more we can push this direction. Of course, the more we push in this direction, the more economic insecurity we're creating out into the future. Um, but the, the problem with insecurity is it, it, it force it, psychologically it gets us to think short term. And um, the problem... The problem is we need to be thinking somewhat, somewhat long term. Um, so how how we, might we tell that story differently? It's, it's really a matter of of questioning. Uh, that, that, you know, Maslow sort of said that we will if you keep stimulating people's insecurity values, it'll be harder for them to leverage up and think about their higher level values. But that means we 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 know that people still seek higher level values no matter how insecure their life has become. And so I think we need to keep getting out there and keep appealing to people's higher sense higher sense of purpose. In the, and, and resist the narratives that basically say, you know, the, the end is coming for, for some reason we can't deal with the future right now. Um, we're, we're up against a, a powerful uh, weapon on the other side. We just have to keep empowering, keep empowering, and not using their tools to keep saying, well, actually, here's, here's a better way to take care of today right now. Like, recognize that we're, it's an uphill battle, but it's, we're fighting the right one by empowering them. I'll just add that we've had an author here, Chris Martinson, who's a futurist and author, who said that the narrative is broken in America right now for young people. It used to be study, work hard, go to college, get a degree, come out with maybe a manageable amount of debt. You have some some upward mobility and, and some autonomy. And right now there's a generation that's looking at coming out with a lot of debt, not much opportunity, uh, flattening life expectancy, health issues, et cetera. That story is broken. And I'm not sure there's a story to replace it for young people these, these days. Um, John, anything that? I just wanted to add briefly that cap and trade is one of those issues that just defies storytelling. There it's were, a, in fact, process, several, there were a number of documentaries done around that time about cap and trade, and nobody watched them. Nobody could understand them. Uh, so there are some issues that we have yet to crack the code. The best one was was John Stewart, who had Captain Trade, like Captain Crunch, yeah. <laughs> and completely um, got it. It was hilarious because he just he, he he skewered it. Let's have our next audience question. Yeah, hi. Thanks for starting this dialogue or continuing it. Um, I'd like to see a story that helps people connect the dots, especially students and young people, uh, connects the dots about fossil fuels and the problems with burning things to produce energy. Uh, We have problems with the mining, problems with fracking, problems with air pollution and human health, problems with transport, problems with carbon buildup, climate change, fires, etc., so really the age of burning is coming to a close, I feel, for the human species. We need to find other ways to get energy. And um, returning to a theme that you brought up a few minutes ago, um, I also think there's room for some stories about people as heroes who make wise investments in clean energy, like all of the thousands of Californians who have invested in solar panels and maybe went into some debt to do so. Uh, many Americans go into debt without blinking for a $30,000 SUV, but when it comes to a solar panel installation, they go, oh, that's way too expensive. And they don't even need to go into <laughs> debt now because you can get no capital up front solar installation. So are we done with fire? Are we, earlier we had a recommendation about fire being the icon. So which way are we going to go on this? Well, it's amazing how the, uh, you know, we know that alternative energy and and making markets competitive for alternative energy has got to be part of the mix for this solution. You know, one of the, the, the gleeful dancing on the grave of Solyndra has been a big story, right? Oh, it doesn't work. Here, phew, it doesn't work. Now we can just move on. And I think we need to definitely need to tell, tell that story. Well, it better work, and we better be putting a lot of resources into and, and market forces to push it. It's not the only solution, alternative energy, but, yeah, we better be celebrating the ingenuity and innovation in that, in that field for sure. And that's, that's a major story of heroes, people who are 
working to save the planet in that space? There's, there's some evidence that getting people focused on adaptation actually motivates them to um, to take action related to mitigation. Explain what you mean by adaptation, sure. sort of uh, dealing with climate change is going to happen anyway. Right. So if it's going to happen, what are we going to do about it? Does our town need to put sand piles along the edge because the water is going to rise or... Um, you know, are there going to be um, more storms, and so I'm going to have to have backup supplies, et cetera, would be the adaptation, whereas the mitigation would be to try to prevent it from happening in the first place. And so it's I'm just sort of thinking aloud, but I wonder if there's a narrative that's actually related to the adaptation side of things. And once people get um, uh, more motivated around the, the reacting to what's going to happen, they want to um, avoid it getting worse, and so they also focus on the mitigation. There might be people who deny it's happening, but they want to protect that seafront condo. Um, Yes, sir, let's have our next audience question. So my my point, there's been an awful lot of very interesting discussion. You've covered a lot of ground. The whole issue of globalization and dematerialization, um, we've come a long way in which we had Charles Dickens and we had burning smokestacks in London, and people couldn't breathe because there was thick black smoke around them. I think probably a little bit, maybe a little bit more emphasis might be beneficial to be placed on the good things that have come out of things recently. Uh, you have, like Kerry spoke about, actually connecting with information, with games and things like that. Google, um, GPS systems, traveling all over the globe. Right now, when you had stuff piled up in your backyard or your house or whatever, everything was in front of you. So you could actually appreciate things with dematerialization, with the Internet, with things which are electronic. Um, A lot of the production, like in the story of stuff, happens overseas. It's not in your backyard. It's someone else's problem. It's out of sight, out of mind. Having those metrics, taking that information, and actually showing people that that information is really powerful. You can have GPS systems. Is it beneficial to travel down to the grocery store to buy something if you're only saving a few cents or pennies um, somewhere somewhere else? Maybe it's actually better to spend a bit more. With that information, it really empowers people. People have smartphones. You can actually use technology to your advantage. And I think by using that and making sensible choices, you can start connecting the dots. You can start actually quantifying where the use is actually happening. Is it beneficial? Is it a cell phone that's being thrown away in two years or whatever? Can things actually be more beneficially created? So you actually start creating a circle in which everything, as the last lady was talking about, you connect the dots and people actually see continuity. Right now, the system is broken. Everything is basically... Fractured. It's basically specialization. Everything is done somewhere to the nth degree, Thank but you, you don't That's see the connections. Hope. We need hope in connecting dots. Last, we're going to have to wrap that up here. This is that was the last one. So, um, who would like to feel that one? Well, John Dickens was a great dot connector. <laughs> Dickens was a great dot connector. Okay. I'll leave it at that. And that's what, that's what stories are for, right? The world is just a lot of dots, and stories tell us which ones to pay attention to and how to connect them together. And yeah, that, we have the technology now to do it, and we have the narrative patterns to do it, and it's part of our work. And the dots, uh, the circles of the Climate One logo are actually also about connecting dots and convening, et cetera. Um, we have to end it there. Our thanks to uh, Carrie Armel, Director of uh, Sensor and Behavior Institute at Initiative at Stanford, John Ells, Director of the Documentary Program at the UC Berkeley School of Journalism, and Jonah Sachs, co-founder of Free Range Studios and author of the new book, Winning the Story Wars, Why Those Who Tell and Live the Best Stories Will Rule the Future. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank our guests and our audience here at Climate One for coming today. Thank you very much.